Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. And today we are going in deep with Greg Sands. Greg uh, is the founder and managing director of Costa Nova Venture Capital in California. Uh, he is someone that I have known and worked closely with for over 20 years, both uh, on the Return Path Board and here at Bolster. Uh, Greg, welcome to the Daily Bolster. Thrilled to be here. Um, one of my favorite uh, stories about you is that you were, uh, I believe, the first non-engineering team member at Netscape. And uh, is that, that is the correct characterization? Yes, I, th- I was the first to be hired. There were a couple that were hired after me, but started before me, if you want to be okay, really first specific. To be, first to be hired, 1994, dawn of the commercial internet, not even the dawn, the pre-dawn of the commercial internet. Um, probably half the people watching this don't even know what Netscape was. Uh, but Netscape was the, the brought the browser to the world. And, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen invented, what was it called? Mosaic? Mosaic. Mosaic and turned it into Netscape. And, um, uh, you know, I would love to hear reflecting on 20, however many years, 28 years, 29 years, and all that's happened uh, to the world because of the internet, because of browser number one and everything that came from it. Like, how do you, how do you sort of think about that piece of your experience um, in, the, in the rear view mirror? And you have to tell a good story about Mark or Ben or Jim Barksdale or Jim Clark or something. Sure. Uh, so I will say, um, so I don't think about it that often, but it's unequivocally the foundation on which my career has been built, right? It was a launching pad for, for sure. I think we knew that we were in an extraordinary place at an extraordinary time. So I was the first person hired and on my third day of work, we showed up on the cover of Time Magazine. No, maybe of Fortune Magazine is the coolest company in the, in, in the country. Um, 14 months later, we were public with a $8 billion market cap, having done $80 million in the first year of revenue. So it, it was, I mean, it was quite something. Uh, so the, uh, there were, of course, no online stock trading applications at the time because right. <laughs> we were barely selling books. But uh, using the phone at Charles Schwab it was the low cost way to right. um, to buy and sell stocks. And if you dialed the 800 number on that day, it said, welcome to Charles Schwab for the Netscape IPO press one. It was so dominant, dominated yeah. everything that was happening. It was, yeah, yeah it, was, it was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but I would say it is, um, there are moments of um, extraordinary things happening in, uh, in, in the technology industry. And there are times when you know you're in one of them. And there are times uh, when you think you might be, but you're not. And there are times where, one might not necessarily know that it's as foundational a period. And it does usually take two to five years to figure that out. And so to me, one of the most interesting things is having been part of something that was so foundational, so explosive, so out of the ordinary. And then with that lens, trying when, for example, 
the large language models and chat GPT comes out, is this one of those absolutely foundational moments or is it not, right? Was the, the iPhone, was it one of those absolutely foundational moments or was it not? You and I are old enough to remember that there was a moment where people thought push technology was that foundational. Right. And Pointcast, Pointcast. hit the earth about 12 months later. Yeah. Pointcast with the ultimate uh, solution looking for a problem, right? Exactly. Um, so uh, you have to have a good Mark Andreessen story. You probably have hundreds of them. Uh, but one from like early, early Netscape, not A16Z, not everything he's become. What was it like working with him when he was 23 and inventing something that changed the world? Well, um, okay, there, there are probably two that are the, uh, that show up. I'll, I'll do them quickly. One is uh, Mark's office uh, was stacks and stacks of paper. I don't even know what the stacks of paper were. And then where there wasn't paper, there were boxes of honeycombs. And when we were, you know, the company was formed as Mosaic Communications. Uh, there was the beginnings of us saber rattling on a uh, intellectual property or trademark lawsuit on Mosaic in particular. Uh, we had been trying to come up with a name originally just for the browser product. And I'd run uh, brainstorming sessions with the engineering team and uh, and the like, and nothing was was working. And at some point, um, the late Mike Homer and Jim Clark uh, and Mark walked by and grabbed me and pulled me into Mark's office. And they said, okay, the trademark thing is real. We have to do something. And we've been thinking about it. We've been working on it. And uh, and it literally just, you know, popped into my brain. This is the way you see the net. How, how about Netscape? And everyone, after all this stress, looked around, they're like, yeah, that's pretty good. That that's probably it. And we all walked out. Um, so, so that's, uh, that, that's one. I think the other, I saw a picture recently, uh, one of the uh, Netscape founders had uh, forwarded to me a picture of, um, uh, of a group of us in Jim Clark's swimming pool, which would have been the summer of 1984, 1994. The, the company was less than two months old. And um, uh, Mark really wanted to throw John Doerr in Jim Clark's swimming pool. And I was the person he roped into doing it. So at a moment when John Doerr was unequivocally the best venture capital investor in the world, and, you know, Mark was, you know, 23 and I was, I don't know, 29 or something. Um, you know, we went over and we picked up John Doerr and we threw him into Jim Clark's pool and we lived to tell about it. You did. Uh, that is impressed. That one I haven't heard. I'd heard about the naming, but I'd never heard that one before. Um, all right, and then my last Netscape question, Jim Barksdale, famous for saying after saying after saying after saying, I, I have 10 of them running through my head. What's your favorite one? I think my favorite one is um, when a bear fights an alligator, who wins depends on the terrain, which means you got to pick the terrain, right? If you're, if you're the startup, you're going against the giant, picking the terrain Picking the battle is as important as anything else. I've actually never heard that one before. That is great. When a bear fights an alligator, who wins depends on the terrain. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's fast forward. Uh, you're, you joined Sutter Hill uh, as associate or senior associate or principal. You get up through the ranks. You're a partner. You're investing. You're at one of the most venerable firms on Sand Hill Road. 
you have great portfolio, and then you leave and start a new venture capital firm from scratch. You leave it all behind. Uh, what was the spark? Uh, and I know you like you're close with the guys at Sutter. I knew all of them. You know, tremendous, uh, high quality people, good human are, beings, great absolutely. human beings. Yeah. So, what was the spark? And and yeah. uh, let's start with that. To me, the the big thing was seeing that the landscape had had changed, hmm. and that the easy way to say it is with the rise of cloud computing, it had gotten easier and less expensive to start a business than ever. The response of the major venture capital firms was to increase themselves four or five X in size. So in 98, 99, 2000, every firm that you think of was a three or $400 million early stage fund with only one strategy in a stage fund, right? Now, many of them, you know, raise $5 billion a year. And so that mismatch between what the market needed and what the big firms were doing is the one that created the opportunity. The thing that was had, was clear is that there had been an early group of seed funds, but the seed funds were mainly B2C, focused on internet 2.0 companies. They were mainly what I call you know Johnny Appleseed. It isn't a bad strategy, but it isn't my preferred strategy. And so the idea that in the enterprise environment, doing foundational, old school, value-added, early stage, concentrated investing, just it, it wasn't being done. And so that to me was the, was the fundamental spark and the reason to go do something different. Um, and, and by the way, you, you and your firm have stayed true to that focus um, through, through now 12 years, 10 years, uh, uh, 10 plus. So um, talk a little bit about how you started the firm and how you kind of, I remember you and I were sitting at lunch um, at Fiesta Del Mar and you told me you were spinning yourself out. And I was like, what the hell is he talking about? And to this day, I've never heard of, um, of a venture firm created in the manner uh, in, in which you created Costa Noa. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Um, the, so I was fortunate to be able to take uh, uh, portions of Sutter Hill's ownership in you know, a handful of companies, including Return Path and Intact and Data Logics and Demand Base. Those were those were all places where I had led the investment. And uh and I think uh and basically use that as the seed corn for the for, for uh Costa Nova to be able to say to LPs, look, here is an example of my work. We get to benefit from some of it mid-stage, and then we're going to go do a bunch new. And the most important thing is that I, I was able to do it in part because of my relationship with the Sutter Hill folks and in part because of the principles of the firm uh, that really continue to inform the, the way I work, which is um, you eat what you kill, you communicate directly, uh, you, know, you act honorably in every circumstance, and you aim for win-win. And if you do those things, lots of things get easier. And so in this case, look, I, I had um, you know, a bunch of economic interests in the funds. And I said, what I really want is to have more of the stuff that I've done. I'm willing to eat, eat what I kill. I, I'm happy to do it in a way that is win-win, that works for everybody. 
And as a result, uh, one of the uh, one of the partners, the esteemed Jim Gaither, and I sat down in a room, and he said, um, "Don't negotiate with me, but and don't lawyer up. Like literally, do not hire a lawyer. But if you and I can work this out, I'll go to bat and I'll make this happen for you." And we, the whole agreement was on two sheets of paper. It was ratified by a common lawyer who, who was the firm's counsel, but I had developed trust in. Yeah, yeah. And uh, with that, I was able to walk off into the world and you know raise a substantial first fund to create Costa Noa as we know it today. That says so much about the, um, the culture and values at Sutter Hill, obviously yours. But uh, but so much that um, that you were able to do that on a on essentially a, a handshake, a lightly papered handshake. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. right. No, I, look, I and I as a result, I you know I have great respect for Sutter Hill. In fact, what you know what they've done, even subsequent to my departure, is you know more impressive than what they've done before. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. But also um, have tried to make sure that those principles show up in our work. Uh, include, including, and most importantly, they show up in our work with founders. Mm -hmm. What we want to be is to be someone who is trusted enough, both by, um, you know, in, integrity, but also by judgment and um, trust in transparent communications, that we can be a person in the boardroom where people can be uncertain or um, share bad news in spite of the fact that we are an investor. Right, and actually that was gonna be my question. So you, um, you know, most venture capitalists are not founders, right? They're, they work at a firm, um, some of them obviously, someone had to start the firm at some point, but you know, the overwhelming majority of people who are investors and board members um, uh, from, from VCs are not founders and you are. And the question is how does that change the way you like to show up, um, you know, either in a boardroom or even just sitting with the founder. It has affected the way that I, that, that I, that I work and invest for, for sure. I, I think it is important to say um, it has to some extent always been the case that I think of it as a relationship business, that what you and I have been able to do and, you know, Rob Reed and I, you know, were able to do and, Doug Valenti at Quinn Street and I were able to do is what I'm, you know, doing now with Satyan Sangani at Alation, for example, right? But layered on top of that is that it's made me much more empathetic uh, to, for founders. And so the, look, the fact uh, starting something is hard being ultimately responsible for it is hard. Raising money is hard every time, but it's especially hard the first time. And so <clears throat> with that, uh, that, you know, I think what the, you know, empathy for that has led me to do is uh, <clears throat> one, to be faster and clearer and more direct with founders during their fundraising processes. Um, By the way, huge, right? Absolutely huge to be able to be fast and direct, even if the answer is no, especially right. if the answer is no. 
and um, right, so I've gotten way better at that. I think the um, as a board member, I have gotten more direct. It's very, you know, it's. I think I, by instinct, I'm a I'm a diplomat. I am optimistic, and therefore, um, uh, you know, want to encourage founders and management teams to have success. But they also benefit from hearing what I actually think. And so I've come up with ways to um, uh, take the edge off of it, but still say, hey, look, that that doesn't quite compute. Those pieces don't add up. And, you know, let's take it offline and go work on it. But I'm, I'm not sure that this is the plan that you ultimately want to end up with. Uh, those, I think, are the two biggest uh, things that have affected how I work with founders. Now, it's also the case that being ultimately responsible and being the person who's got to lead the firm has meant I actually have, I say no to many more things before I take a meeting. Mm -hmm. Right. I have to. You have to. All right. So let me ask you the, the flip of that question. How has working with all these founders and CEOs over the years influence the way you run the firm, right? Venture capital firms not known for being well-run organizations, not that they're not good investors, but they, they typically don't invest much in their own infrastructure. Yes. I think it's fair to say that most venture firms are very poorly run um, as, uh, as organizations, not, not even necessarily as businesses, but as, as organizations. And so I think the, um, for me, the um, the the big thing is that uh, you know the thing about being the person in charge, being the founder, and, and it's been true for you as CEO, is you sort of you have to make all of the decisions, and they have to work together, right? So as the landscape changes around, you need to make all of these subtle decisions, and so you know, in in the venture capital case, the question of um, you know, which sectors, which stages, which themes, what check size, what ownership level, what entry point, what people, what process, what fund size, like all right. of those go together. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the places where we uh, we actually get a great deal of credit for our, from our LPs is that all of those things make sense. They evolve a bit every year as the landscape changes and we learn new things. But then they make sense the next year too, because we've tied the pieces of them together. Uh -huh. And I, so I think that's the strategy part of it. That's easy. And then the question is, how do you actually manage the organization and um, you know hire and develop the people and and you know manage the process in order to achieve that? And I think honestly, I, I look at us and I think, oh, we are a you know, somewhere between competently run to pretty darn well run organization in terms of how those mechanics work. We tolerate a little bit of chaos. We use a little bit of process. And the average venture firm is incredibly poorly run. And there's an awful lot of, um, there's a lot of wasted energy. There's a lot of uh, politics and conflict. There are a lot of places where people are out managing their own careers rather than doing what's best for the firm or doing what's best for the portfolio companies. And that stuff is just not tolerated here. Is there a 
firm you look to as the gold standard? You're like, yeah, like you say, you're moderately well run. Like, is there one you're like, wow, you know, I aspire to be like X or, or is there no X? There is no X. There is no X. Maybe Costanoa is the X. <laughs> well, I, so I, and I, when I say there's no X, I don't mean, I don't know definitively that there isn't somebody who's, who's really, right. well there's, there's no one that's well known for it. That's right. And yeah. it's and it's very hard to see inside of other firms. There are a small yeah. handful of places where you've got a close enough yeah. relationship that you actually get a real answer to that rather than a bunch of chest thumping, which is yeah. not useful at all. But I'll also say, you know, if you look at the, um, you know, if one were to posit that, you know, Bessemer or Andreessen or Sequoia is really well run, they're operating on a scale which isn't relevant to what we're doing and it isn't relevant to our strategy right by definition of fund size they're doing something that um i mean look it's just go big or go home every day for every company at all times right. and it's just not the way we have to run right. so we really had to make it up ourselves and we have the thing that i think has been helpful is to basically take the basics of a growth mindset and say okay nobody knows exactly how to do this so we're going to sketch it out. We're going to come up with a theory. We're going to put it in practice. And then we're just going to keep getting better every day. Yeah. I mean, look, when you have $5 billion under management, the management fees alone give you plenty of infrastructure to play with. Um, so it's a, it is a different game. Yeah. Well, and by the way, that's, you know, half of what Andreessen raised last year. Last year. You know, right. AU, AUM is five or 10 times that. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, um, the companies uh, that you've invested in and the CEOs that you've backed. Um, and when, when you think about um, some of your most successful investments, right? You talked about Rob Reed from Intact, Satyan at Elation, obviously still a work in progress there. Um, uh, you know, maybe Doug, Doug Milletti. Um, what are the things that those CEOs have in common that drove scaled success? Like not just success, like, hey, you know, I built something, it was a single, it was fine. But what are the things that those CEOs have um, in common that drove that, you know, not necessarily hyper growth, because a lot of B2B companies don't know what hyper growth is, right? It's like slow, steady progress. Um, but what, what drove that success? Mm -hmm. And by the way, in, in B2B environment, I think, you know, um, you can have, you know, excellent growth. You can have 100% growth, sometimes even at scale. Uh, but you're not, you know, you're not going to have the Facebook moment, right? Or, um, you know, or the like, where you've just got a trend that takes over the country and uh, in 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 one fell swoop. I think there are, um, you know, there. I'll talk about my the pattern, my own pattern that I've observed because I think yeah. it sometimes is, um, you know, a, a little different. You know, the the number one is just. Um, drive and tenacity. And many investors will say passion. And I actually quite dislike that word um, because uh, Adam Newman has passion, right? But you got to show up every morning. You got to keep your feet moving. You got to grind it out when it gets hard. And it's always going to be a time when it's hard. And so the drive and tenacity to me is thing number one that um that 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 I see and that I'm that that I'm that I'm looking for. Um the second is um 
I'll phrase it as, you know, intellectual curiosity, but it's, um, they, you know, they, they have to um, be deeply interested in the customer. And the, it's not because they necessarily grew up thinking about this customer, but they've they got to care enough that they're trying to solve the problem. And as they're, they're seeing, in, as, as it evolves, different facets of the problem, and they care and they want to know and the like, now, that also shows up in terms of building the organization. And I'll, I'll quote Satya and, uh, Sangani from Malaysia in this. It's been four years ago, but I remember him coming to me in December, probably December of you know 2019. And he said to me, I think I finally mastered being the CEO that the company needed in 2019. And I realized going into 2020 that it needs a completely different CEO. It needs something completely different from me. And I'm going to have to shed all of that and molt into a new person. By the way, he, he didn't even realize there was a pandemic coming at that point. So, <laughs> Truly, right? Everyone, yeah. needed, everyone needed to be a different CEO in 2020 and no one knew it. <laughs> but, you know, look, the people who can build things of scale um, are, you know, if you, if you think about the classic hero's journey, they are transformed by the process. They have to be signed up to the personal transformation that it takes to be the CEO and the leader that the company needs as it grows. And uh, then the last thing that I'll say is um, the, uh, they, you know, they need to be um, system builders, right? They, we talked about this a little bit before in the context of, of you know, me leading Coast to Know, and this is, frankly, not a very complex organism, and it's not managing it at very big scale. But, you know, the organizations and functions, uh, you know, break every 18 months, if you're continuing to grow, the market landscape changes around you, and you've got to reorient. But that level of constant observation of the market, and the company as, you know, machinery, and the constant tinkering, to get it right and to keep improving is the thing that I've seen make the difference between people that make the turn and people that don't make the turn. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, let's pivot to boards. And uh, this will probably be our last topic, although I have a couple of different questions around boards. So kind of the, the same question or the parallel question to the, the CEO question. Um, when you think about the best boards that you've been on, which might be those same companies and might not be those same companies, um, what makes them great? Or the flip, when you think about the worst boards you've been on, um, what makes them problematic? Yeah. What's, what's the difference? Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I would say some of those companies, and we'd say the same thing about Return Path, uh, I think I've, you know, I have time and time again been on boards where not just the CEO, but the other earliest investors, investor or investors look around and say, this has been an extraordinary experience and is the seminal uh, experience of my professional life. And that happens because of, uh, you know, great people. And when I say great people, it's not because they're the smartest. It's because they... Uh, show up, having read the board book, they've been thinking about the company in between board meetings. They 
have uh, an interesting combination of judgment and insight. There are some people who are the glue people, you know, the wisdom that ties it together. I probably fall more into that category. There are some people who are the sparks of unusual insight. Uh, you know, we worked with Fred Wilson and Brad Feld at Return Path, and uh, both of those are probably in that category. Um, and then they communicate well. And in communicating well, I mean, uh, are direct and clear about what they think. Uh, they um, don't take up too much airtime. And they uh, don't pick unnecessary fights or have to win every battle. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take extraordinary to be a great board member. But it, it really is one where I'd say, oh, blocking and tackling really well and being dedicated to blocking and tackling is most of what it takes. Now, what, what are the worst boards? The worst boards are with, you know, look, it's the caricature of venture capital board members. Um, you know, don't, you know, show up later, don't show up, aren't paying attention, haven't read the board book. Um, they're, they're out there like doing email the whole time. Doing email the whole time. You know, by the way, you know, what it's chat GPT as, as board member, right? Oh, you know, never, never often wrong, but never in doubt. And, At least I, know, I know now we have our poll quote from this one. <laughs> yeah. Often wrong, but never in doubt. Yeah. And I think it is the case that, um, uh, you know, board members, uh, investor board members who are, um, who are early in their, often early in their careers or often don't really come from op working inside companies, I think don't quite know how hard it is to actually make things change inside an organization. So they'll show up 30 days later or 60 days later and say, Matt, you know, we talked about this. Why haven't you done it? Right. And yet there's all of this machinery that actually needs to be moved and people and role scope and the like. And so I do think that just having some empathy for how hard the job of startup CEO is makes a big difference. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, so last question about boards that I've been thinking a lot about lately is kind of you know the future of, of the venture back board or the future of, of venture back board meetings. And so you know if we wind the clock back five years, you're in California. Return Path was based in New York. You you got on a plane a few times a year to come to New York for a board meeting. We had a board dinner. We had a drinks thing with the team. We do a half a day meeting. You know, maybe you'd tack on another meeting or two in New York. You'd fly back to California. It's, you know, heavy lift. Um, worth every minute of it, I'm sure, but heavy lift. And but that's how all board meetings were. And you know, firms concentrated their investments in specific places, or they had multiple offices, so they could do that. Um, the pandemic obviously broke that, right? It, for year, two years, everything was shorter and on Zoom and probably companies were the worst for it. Um, and, you know, maybe things are moving into some kind of hybrid mode night, right now, but sort of how, how do you think about that? And, and I guess the, my, the, the fine point I'll put on the question is I know for partners at a venture capital firm, one of the big limiters is how many boards you can sit on. Right? How many of your investment capacity and your capacity to be a you know a productive advisor um, to to a CEO um, is limited? And you know, did the pandemic change that? Like now, everyone's capacity is up fifty percent to hundred percent because you don't have to fly across the country um, and meetings are shorter and on Zoom. Is that healthy? Is it not healthy? And where where's that all going? 
it is so it is definitively the single biggest limiter on venture capital activity. I think it is right to say um, it is so much more efficient that many board meetings will be uh, remote. Companies will say, oh, we'll have one or maybe two board meetings a year that are face to face where we'll do a board dinner right. and we'll, which and we'll may, which may be enough. It may, there may be enough to do a couple. Yeah. Um, it is, I think, like in other um, work contexts, I'd say it's way more efficient and not quite as good. Um, but but it's twice as efficient and you know twenty percent less good. So you kind of have to do it. Yeah. Um, I think the so for sure the pandemic was a catalyst for it, but so were zero interest rates, right? In the end, so uh, many VCs are um, deal junkies. Their whole thing is they're just hunting. They're just hunting the next deal. Now they may show up for a board meeting. They may not, but like they're just hunters. The um, uh, zero interest rates and the explosion of fund sizes. So what I observed 11 or 12 years ago is now metastasized right. um, so that, again, can I deploy all the capital the firm wants me to deploy is the question. And therefore, you know, the board meetings are just, they're the tail that's getting dragged around. Um, so I am, uh, I, you know, what we pride ourselves on trying to be the foundational board member in and around the company to have the time to work with the company and know it well, to be trusted enough to be the first call and to have enough capital to stay with the company over time. So we, we don't, uh, you know, abandon ship two years later. Right. Wow. The consequence of that is, um, uh, you know, that's a design decision. It's a strategic decision. It, it you know, drives, you know, limits on fund size, but it, it takes a, a, a choice to do that. And very few people are choosing to do it. And so the, to me, the real question is, does um, the reduction in the amount of capital going into the ecosystem that's likely because of higher interest rates and lower public markets and the, the like, does it slow everybody down a touch? And I think the answer, it is likely to slow everybody down a touch. But unfortunately, I think it is not going to be the case that most venture firms and therefore most venture capitalists go back to saying, actually the most important part of my job is being an extraordinary board member and partner to CEOs. I wish it were true. Well, that's a trend that you and I can pick up another time. Indeed, I would be happy to. Greg Sands from Costa Nova Ventures, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure. Yeah.